0: Science story. Huh?
1: Is that why you're a scientist? Uh, they felt it. I, I, right. right. I was so and happy. I, just, oh, well, I figured it wow. out. It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week, in honor of Valentine's Day, We're presenting stories about the times when science breaks our hearts. Our first story is from Praborna Ganguly. It was recorded in October 2017 at the Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme that night was roadblocks.
1: So in 2009, I came to the U.S. on a student visa. On a suitcase full of expectations and pressure Neatly packed in by my not-so-overbearing Indian parents. And following the normal Indian immigrant trajectory, I studied and got my bachelor's in biology. And then found myself studying early life stress in rats. Not sure where that came from. Um, And everything was going pretty well when I fell in love. So we met on the first day of grad school. He said that he fell in love with me by the fourth day. We were friends for 8 months and then we started this whirlwind romance, you know. I can imagine all of you knowing this whole idea of, "Oh, he made me feel so good. He made me feel so amazing and he would send me these postcards from faraway places saying things like "Home is not where you're born. It is where you belong." Some people find it in places. Some people find it in people. I know this to be true. I found it in you. (laughs) And as kitschy and cliched as this quote was, I'm sitting there, bawling. (laughs) I mean, come on, guys, this rom-com stuff, when it happens to us, is wonderful. (laughs) So things are just going really great. But there was one problem. You see, I was unhappy and I had been for a while. So at work, I was struggling to keep up. At um, home, in terms of talking to my parents, I was struggling to listen and take their advice. And at home per se, I was struggling to balance my emotions. And being with somebody who is unbalanced isn't really easy, as I'm sure many of you can imagine. You know, because not only do you have to take care of yourself, you now have to take care of another person. And inevitably, that relationship ended. And I remember as he was walking away after having packed his bags and, had, and having said things like, oh, I don't love you anymore, I don't want to be with you anymore, and all of that. I just couldn't help thinking, how could you say that to me? This is crazy. Well, you see, I had always been the one doing the breakup. So somebody telling that to me was the first time when I realized, oh, well, you know, I can be at fault here. And the relationship had been really important to me because, you know, outside this relationship bubble was another bubble that is much more unforgiving, which is the research bubble, where you have to stay on top and be on top or you're out, you know. Okay, so a couple of weeks pass, and I have to do some research, you know, so I study neuroscience, I have to do some surgeries in the rats from time to time and study their brains. So I go to my lab, and I take a rat, and I give it an analgesic, which is, you know, just to alleviate its pain after the surgery is done. And I take it to the surgery room, I put it on the contraption that I'm going to use to open its brain, and at that moment, all I can think about is him, Right? I mean, the whole morning phase that happens with people after a breakup. Oh my God, the first time he kissed me. I'm never going to be kissed like that again. I mean, you know, the first time he said he loved me, the first time. And all of those innumerable personal histories that people share when they spend all their time together. And imagine this happening while there's Amsterdam by Coldplay playing in the background. <laughs> which happened to be his favorite breakup song. So, I mean, it was yeah slightly ridiculous anyway so I'm about to make my first incision into the rat and I notice that it's not breathing okay so I take it out of um, the contraption and I stroke its um, back a little bit no response I turn it over do some chest compressions no response And then I go, okay, well, I guess I've got to give it CPR. And so the way that you give rats CPR is, okay, so you have a syringe with a needle and a plunger, right? You take out the plunger, you take out the needle, you put the bigger end of the syringe onto the rat's nose, and you just go... (laughs) So you just breathe air into its lungs. No response. Shit. Um, So I'm thinking, well... You know, sometimes this happens, and rats die before you do a surgery because life. And there's just no—I ex- mean, you just don't know what to do about it. And so I go, okay, listen, I'm going on a trip with my friends tomorrow. I've got to finish these surgeries, onwards and forwards here. And after mourning for five seconds, because I used to name all of my rats at that point in time—big mistake, don't do it. Um, <laughs> I go on to the next animal. And so I um, get the bottle, the analgesic bottle, and I'm going into the animal room, and I just take a glance, and... This time, shit for real. Um, It happened to be an identical bottle, but it had a drug called ketamine in it. The same dose of which could potentially kill a rat. (laughs) So this wasn't life. Okay, and I'm standing there with the murder weapon thinking, well, now I really need to tell my advisor about what happened here. So I'm thinking, confess, not confess. Confess, I guess, I guess that's fine. So I take the bottle, I take my future, and I go into my advisor's office and I tell her what happened. She looks at me. And she says, I think you should go home for today. And I say, okay, I guess, what about the other surgeries? Don't worry about them, they'll be done by someone else. Okay, so I go home and I mean, I can't eat, I can't sleep, I can't think, I'm just walking around. I turn on the TV, there's Rocky playing, so I watch Rocky for a bit and then I make some curry because curry is great for all of you, all of us, you know, Indian food. Comfort food, my ass. Um, And so I am waiting for something, and in the evening, I get this email from her, and my stomach just drops. It's titled, Today and the Future. Okay. Bring it on, okay. And I can't... Read the email at this point, right? I'm just reading it so fast, there's just phrases are coming into my head. Deeply disappointed. Could not be more clear. Asked to leave. And at that moment, I'm just thinking, well, this is it. This is it. My life's over. I'm going to be kicked out of the program. I'm, you know, going to have to go back to India. I think of my parents and, you know, those awful headlines, such as every day a student commits suicide in India. All of these insane things are coming into my head at that moment. And I don't know what happened, but I have this bizarre, frantic response. I say, you know what? I've got to send her something in this moment. I've just got to send her something. Let's send her an experiment. So, I just sit there and I think, let's send her science because she doesn't think I can be a good scientist. Okay. So, I just sit there and I just write some experimental design and I just send it to her. And then the next day, I pack my bags and I go to Puerto Rico as I had planned with my friends. Classic first world way of dealing with your problems, right? You just pick a travel destination and you go there for two weeks. Um, So that's what I do because I obviously needed to clear that headspace for a bit. And the second weekend, I get an email from her saying, I'm looking forward to working with you when you come back. Great. Okay. Fast forward four months. Work is fine. My heart is healing, you know, one way or another. And I go into the lab and I'm about to enter the office when this undergrad comes running up to me saying, Praborna, Praborna, something's really wrong. You need to come with me right now. And I'm thinking, if an undergrad is saying something's wrong, then I guess something probably is really wrong right now. Okay. So I go with uh, her and I enter this room where we keep our negative 70 degree freezers. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with this temperature, um, it's really, really cold. (laughs) Um, And we have to keep our brain samples here, you know, so that they don't melt, basically. And this is, I mean, this is really important because all of our data is gotten through the brains that we keep. And I look at the freezer and I see water outside. There's condensation outside. Anyone with a fridge knows that's not a good sign. And so I open the freezer and everything's melted. Now, just to, again, reiterate, months of data, years, decades, stuff that most likely is not going to be used anymore, still really important science, hiding somewhere in there, gone. Okay, well, even the data that I had collected, you know, for the study that I had written before I left for Puerto Rico, gone. Mechanical failure, they say, or whatever. Some electrician hates us. <laughs> um... So I go back into the office and I'm just going, well, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to feel at that moment. And I hear footsteps. And I know that it's my advisor's footsteps. She's very distinct footsteps. Like, really, like... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, well, preparing myself for the attack here. Um, So she comes in and she looks distressed, you know. She's obviously really, really upset and... um, she looks at me and almost teary-eyed, she says, Praborna, I don't know what to say. I, I don't know what to say. And at that moment, some random, crazy, absurd line comes into my head. And I think some of you probably know this line. Life is not about how hard you hit. It is about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. So with Rocky Balboa by my side, (laughs) I just look at her and I say, well, you know, let's get to work. And we did. Thank you.
0: That was Praborna Ganguly born is a graduate student in neuroscience at Northeastern University. Her research focuses on how and why maternal care is necessary for the healthy development of infants. As an aspiring science writer, she is constantly looking for good science stories to share, and she describes herself as, quote, comfortably Indian, saying she enjoys cricket and Pink Floyd and simple frivolities. Our next story is from Kirsten Grohruud Colbert. It was recorded in August 2017 at the Oregon Convention Center in Portland, Oregon, as part of a show produced in partnership with Springer Nature's Springer Storyteller Program, and held in conjunction with the Ecological Society of America's annual conference.
2: So I've come to believe in big things. When I was a grad student, my research took me to the coral reefs of the Florida Keys, And I live and work in Oregon now, and Oregon is not that. (laughs) So I find myself often thinking about those crystal clear blue waters and what it felt like to be flying in our boat over that water, out to the fringing reefs of the Florida Keys. They're in about 30 feet of water. It was beautiful. And that's what we were doing on this particular day. We were heading out to those reefs because we were going to be taking some surveys of baby fish. I work with baby fish. (laughs) Sometimes I kill baby fish, but don't tell people. (laughs) (laughs) And we are going out to do these surveys. And I was going out to do them with this group of people that I had really come to know and love. And most of us were in our early 20s. It was a time in my life where my research meant that we were underwater more than we were above water each day. We were all idealists. We were going to save the ocean. And for me, a bad day was I forgot my sunscreen or I lost a data sheet, even though losing a data sheet is still a bad thing, am I right? (laughs) Always. (laughs) So most of us fit into that category, except for one person on this day, and that was Chris. And Chris would come out to volunteer with us. He worked at the same university, but he was a physicist. And he would come out so that he could keep his scientific diving certification current. So I'm sure that Chris probably told me what he did, but... Honestly, whenever I pictured Chris at work, I pictured him in this white lab coat. He's got his safety goggles on, right? It's a dark room, and he's shooting lasers. (laughs) Like, space invader-style lasers. Because to me, why would anyone else, I mean, why would you want to be a physicist if you weren't shooting lasers, right? So Chris was with us. And Chris was very different. He was at least 20 years older than us. He had a family, a wife. He was raising kids. He had a job, a real job. And um, a lot of times I felt like maybe Chris was doing a little bit of an internal eye roll because we would be... Oh, you know, the drama of being a student. There's a lot of dramas in being a student. Um, Or like talking about, are we going to have time off this weekend to go to South Beach, you know? Um, And so I always kind of wondered what he thought about that. But as with any kind of field work, you buddy up, right? And on this day, Chris and I were buddies. So we grabbed our transect tape, our data sheets, holding on tight to those, right? And we strap on our scuba tank. And we um, hit the water. And that feeling, right, when you hit the water, just like this weightless, the water's like a bathtub. And, you know, there's a little bit of sound from the reef, but you just hear your breath. And it's so meditative. And you're experiencing it all with another person. You don't talk to that person, but you're there together. And on this day at this reef, like every other time that we went to this reef, the first thing that I do is I look for my touchstone. And I see it out amongst this sea of low-lying gray-green algae. It's like the last redwood on the reef. And it's this huge stand of Acropora coral, Elkhorn coral. And it's this rusty gold apartment building of these little tiny coral polyps. And it's the last one left on the reef. And the reason it's the last one left on the reef is because of this gray-green algae that were there to study and we're there because the little fish really like that algae right they love to hide in it so we lay out our transect tape and what it means is that we have to be shoulder to shoulder one on each side of the transect tape and we have to get way down in there we've got to put our fingers in and kind of rifle through that frilly algae because when we do these fish come out and they're like pop 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 these little guys and you watch them and as soon as they come up you have to note what species they are and you write it down so this is what we're doing. We're like our noses to the reef, looking for these baby fish. And all of a sudden, I get this prehistoric feeling, right? This feeling that something is coming. And something is a very big thing. And so I look up, and honestly, it takes a moment for my mind to process what I'm seeing because this animal is so outlandish. Like, it doesn't even seem like it could be real and swimming straight towards you because it's a hammerhead shark. And this is like a National Geographic worthy hammerhead shark. <laughs> And I know that because the science part of my brain, and this is the part of my brain that spent hours, hours in swimming pools, right? With these little floaty plastic fish training my mind, like, okay, estimate that length, estimate that length. Okay, my science part of my brain says that this shark is at least 12 feet long. And it's swimming straight towards us out of the blue, just swimming straight towards us. And I can feel that Chris sees it, too, right? He's still next to me. And we are just, there's nothing we can do. We can't swim away. We can't stuff ourselves down into the reef. I mean, this is a predator moment, right? I mean, we understood like what it meant to be prey. That shark was swimming straight towards us. And it kept coming. And it kept coming. And it was still coming until it was about four feet away. And then it just turned. And it showed us this incredible power of its tail fin. And then it just swam away back into the blue. And my heart has never raced so much. I tell you, I, I have goosebumps right now because I'm remembering what it felt like to have that thing swimming straight towards us. So I look at Chris and our eyes are both like, they're big, our eyes are big. Yeah. <laughs> and then I look down And I am holding Chris's hand. (laughs) And we did not have a hand-holding relationship. (laughs) So we were scientists first, though, right? We finished the transect. We did the next transect. And then we went back to the boat. And everyone else was done. So they're just waiting for us, like, what's up? Um, And we were like... You will never guess. And they were like, no. And we're like, you didn't see it? No. We were like, 12 feet? Yes. Like, two of me. Everyone, it was a free-for-all. So in the middle of all that, right, I just kind of like nonchalantly sidled up to Chris, like, Chris, did I hold your hand down there? And he was like, um, yeah. (laughs) And I still kind of blush when I think about it. I was very... I was very embarrassed. Um, So you know, Chris and I—I always felt so different from Chris. But at that moment, man, those differences didn't mean anything, right? We had had this amazing experience together, and it was the end of the day. We were heading home, and Chris was kind of quiet, and I was kind of quiet. And I was kind of wondering if he was thinking what I was thinking, because I was thinking about that shark. Mm-hmm. And that shark is an ocean swimmer, right? It visits, it visits so many reefs during its life, just looking for the next meal. And I wondered what that shark thought when it got to that reef. There's just that one coral stand left, a couple of snappers in there. But that's it. That's the only thing going. And so a couple months later, I was back at the same reef. And Chris, he wasn't really diving with us anymore. He was back in the lab because the laser's called. (laughs) And um, like any other time, when I dropped down on that reef, I looked for my touchstone, and it wasn't there. And in a second, I could see what had happened because there was a pile of rubble on the reef, and wrapped against one of those pieces, wrapped around, was fishing line. And you could see really clearly the marks of a propeller on a boat on the chunks of coral. I think you can imagine I cried. I cried underwater. And that's really uncomfortable because (laughs) the tears kind of run down and then to your nose and then you're clearing your mask. I was devastated in that moment. And I thought instantly of that shark and what that meant now that reef was dead to him there was nothing nothing for him on that reef now and i thought instantly of chris too and how we had had that experience and i honestly thought maybe i should call him up and tell him but what would i say right i felt what would i say so i never called him and in fact i never talked to him again we each went our separate ways and it's been it's been a really long time now Um, But that moment, it cemented a passion in me because I lost something that day. And really, we all lost something that day. And I found myself thinking, what if that area had been protected? Maybe those fishers would have moved on. They wouldn't have wrapped their fishing line. They wouldn't have chopped up that coral. And I think about that a lot. And because of that, a major focus of my research now is marine protected areas and what can they do, what can't they do, how can we design them well, where would we put them, how many, how big. And I also think about what if other people knew about that reef, if they knew what we had lost, if other marine biologists, other physicists, our neighbors, grandparents, if they knew what we lost... But that there's also a path forward to protection. That would be a really big thing. Thanks.
0: That was Kirsten Grohru Colbert. Kirsten is a marine ecologist at Oregon State University, where she has studied ocean organisms in the Oregon Nearshore, the Florida Keys and California's Catalina Island, along with other marine systems from the Mediterranean to the Caribbean. She also directs the Science of Marine Reserves Project and loves learning from her creative colleagues in science, communication, and graphic design. She has always been obsessed with water and says that's what growing up in a 120-degree Arizona desert will do to you. For more about Kirsten and other stories and shows produced as part of our partnership with Springer Nature, check out BeforeTheAbstract.com, where they share the stories behind their author's work. And if you're a regular attendee of ESA's annual conference, look for us there again later this year. If you're a fan of today's stories, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 a month or more, we'll list your name in our show programs across the country, as well as send you a very cool comic book of four of our stories. Storyclider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, The Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Erin Barker, with help from our amazing staff and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, and me, Erin Barker. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Oberon and ESA for hosting these shows and to Chocolate. Just Chocolate this week.